0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, why do some people who look like can't miss high achievers on paper end up floundering in life, while those who can seem like underdogs end up flourishing? When my guest noticed this phenomenon while being involved in the selection process of veteran SEALs for a specialized command, it led him to the discovery that beneath more obvious skills are hidden drivers of performance, which he calls attributes. His name is Rich DeVinney, and he's a retired Navy SEAL commander and the author of The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. Today on the show, Rich discusses the difference between skills and attributes and how the ladder can't be taught but can be developed we then talk about the difference between optimal and peak performance before turning to the attributes which drive the ladder we get into a discussion of the components of grit the difference between discipline and self-discipline why you should become something of a humble narcissist and much more and we enter a conversation with how to figure out the attributes you are and aren't strong in and which you need for getting to where you want to go after the show's over check out our show notes at aom.is attributes All right, Rich Davini, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you got a book out called Attributes. We're going to delve deep into this today. And this is based on your experience as a Navy SEAL and also someone who's trained Navy SEALs and other special operators. And you start out the book talking about how this idea of attributes really hit home to you. When you were, you were training a seasoned Navy SEAL in close quarter combat, and he was having a hard time with it. And you couldn't figure out why, because I mean, it's like on paper, this guy, it looks like he should just, he should have gotten this, but then you kind of had this real, like this epiphany that I was looking at the wrong thing. So walk us through that story and how did this lead you to this idea of, of what you call attributes?
1: Yeah. So the training we were running was for a specialized command. And so it was a separate selection and assessment training course where, seasoned and experienced SEALs would apply and then come to this particular course. And then we'd, we'd put them through like a nine month selection process. And we were getting even in that about a 50% attrition rate. So 50% of the guys were not making it. And these, again, these are experienced guys. And up until that point, before I took over training, we did not have as a command any real good explanations as to why. And obviously it was a, it was bothering us because we'd want to articulate it. But it also, it was also kind of detrimental because we weren't able to tell the candidates why, you know, the things like, you know, you couldn't shoot very well, or you couldn't jump. I mean, these are all, these are all experienced guys. So it didn't make sense. So, so I was tasked with trying to find a better way to articulate it. And what I recognized in this course, that was that we were, we were actually looking at the wrong things. We were looking at performance in the wrong way. And of course, you know, close quarter combat, which really for for your listeners is the, the act of clearing, going into and clearing a room and, or a building in several rooms. And it's what you have to do when you're, you know, trying to find a bad guy or rescue a hostage or something like that. And it's a very dynamic, fast paced, active and dangerous environment. And so you have to be very specific about the way you conduct yourself, conduct your weapons handling, move, uh, communicate but it also requires a whole different set of qualities you know uh, the ability to think fast, recognize, adapt, be resilient and so and so ultimately it it made me have to deconstruct performance which is something I actually found I really liked to do and and say okay what's the difference between performance and ultimately it gave me the insight to separate these things. Skills, which are these learned qualities that tell us how to do something, and attributes, which are these innate qualities which really describe and inform the way we show up and so that was the impetus and, and in doing so, we were able to conduct the same training we were always conducting, but explain performance in a much different, much deeper way,
0: yeah, so you I mean you couldn 't tell that guy if he was having a hard time well you 're doing this wrong, like he was probably doing the skilled part right, like he was doing, but there was something high like underlying
1: that that was causing him to not be able to display that skill that's correct and, and it's not even i mean it's not even the it was more that they weren't able to do the skills correctly or the way we needed them to do the skills yet they were skills that almost every seal has right so, so it was kind of it was just a weird situation to saying, hey you know you couldn't do this, but but the reason why is not necessarily because you can't do the skill. It was because we're looking for these these other qualities that inform the way you do the skill. And the way I would describe that is, you know, shooting is a skill. I, you know, let me just back up here. A skill is is not inherent to our nature, right? So we don't we're not born with the ability to to drive a car, or ride a bike, or shoot a gun. So you, you can teach those things. You can be taught those things. And the, and the skills also direct our behavior in in known and specific environments. So here's how and when to drive a car or how, how and when to shoot a gun. And so, and they're very easily seen, which means they're very easy to measure and score and put stats around. Attributes are different. They're inherent to our nature and they're harder to see. So we're all born with levels of adaptability and resilience and and situation awareness. And of course they develop over time and experience, But but you can see levels of these things in small children. And instead of directing or dictating behavior attributes inform behavior. So, so for example, my son's levels of resilience and perseverance informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike and he was falling off a dozen times doing so. So they kind of inform our behavior and because they're hidden, they're difficult to see. They're most visible in stress, challenge, uncertainty when, when the environment becomes unknown and uncertain, because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult, if not impossible to apply a known skill. And so in separating that, what, what we recognize is that, you know, you can you can teach people skills, but you can't necessarily teach people attributes. And in this environment of CQC, sure, we could we could teach a guy how to shoot a gun and hit a target, but what we couldn't necessarily teach is how to run into a room and rapidly assess the environment within milliseconds, understand who's bad and who's not, and then put a precise Bullet where the bullet needed to go, all happening within milliseconds, right? And so so you start to we, we were in an environment where attributes became very, very important, and everybody showing up to the training had the skills, but we just needed to see those skills conducted at a level where the attributes were predominant
0: and one thing you argue in the book, the whole thing about focusing on attributes is about getting you know improved performance quality, yeah. and you make this distinction in performance between performing optimally. And peak performance, I think most people they go, oh, you got to go for peak performance. But you make this case, well, maybe sometimes, but usually not. What's the difference between optimum and, and peak performance?
1: Yeah, optimal performance just gives us a much broader way to look at performance holistically. I mean, peak is great, but but what people have to understand about peak is it's it's an apex. That's all it is. And it's and from any apex, you all you can go is down, right? So and peak often has to be prepared for and scheduled and planned, right? The the pro football player spends his entire week planning and preparing so that he may peak for three hours on Sunday. Right. And so, and so when you think about performance, you know, you know, seals, and I think this applies to life, but seals really people always say, well, seals are the, the, the best performing peak performers. Right. And I said, well, that's, that's not really true because seals are more optimal forms. Optimal performance tells us that and recognize the fact that, you know, well, it means how can I, do the very best I can in the moment, whatever the best looks like in that moment, right? So sometimes that looks like peak performance. It's like, okay, everything's clicking, there's flow states, it's awesome, right? But sometimes the best we can do in the moment is like, I am head down, I'm grinding it out, I'm taking step by step, right? That's all I got. It's ugly, it's dirty, it's 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 gritty, but that's all I got. And that is optimal performance as well. And so looking at performance from an optimal aspect allows us to do a couple of things. It allows us to both... Well, first pat ourselves on the back when we're just grinding it out and it's dirty and it's ugly and it's gritty and it doesn't feel that good, but we're just moving. Right. Which, by the way, is how a lot of SEAL missions go. I mean, you know, some, we, we sometimes finish missions and be like, man, that was really ugly. I mean, We got the job done, but that that was not pretty at all. Right. That was we were doing the best we could in the moment with what we had. But more importantly, it also allows us to modulate our energy As we move through our experience, our day or whatever it is, right? Because I don't need to be peak when I'm driving to the grocery store. You know, I can be, I can, I can kind of modulate my energy down and, and be almost in a recovery mode if I want to. And so if we think about performance much more broadly in the optimal sense, it allows us to understand how to effectively move throughout our day. And then it, it gives us the opportunity to also kind of peak on demand, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm saving up my energy or I'm, I'm, I'm charging my battery when I need to so that when peak is required, I peak, you know, so there's nothing wrong with peak performance. It's just, it's just a, it's just only one aspect of performance. I think optimal performance speaks to the entire broad sense of performance overall. All right. So let's dig
0: into these attributes that allow us to perform optimally. In the book, you highlight, it's 22 attributes and you organize them into groups. First group is grit attributes. Then there's mental acuity attributes, drive attributes, leadership attributes, and team ability. Let's start with grit. Yeah. How do you define grit broadly? And then what attributes make up grit? And I mean, the other question is like, can you develop? I mean, so we talk about attributes being innate. This would be a good chance to say, well, if can we also develop these? So let's start there. Like what's grit and what are the grit attributes?
1: Yeah. Grit is, so people, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people think of grit as its own attribute and it's really not, it's a combination of things. And so, so grit speaks to our ability to push through and, and charge through acute challenges and and obstacles. Right. Um, And what it is, is a combination of things that allow us to do that, that are baked and catalyzed. And so the grit attributes are four, uh, four attributes. It's, it's courage, it's perseverance, it's adaptability, and it's resilience. Those four things kind of blended and catalyzed make up grit. They, they are, the, the result of those things is, is, in fact, grit, your ability to kind of push through. And so, again, we don't have to have high levels of all of them, but all of them have to exist if someone is going to consider themselves gritty, <laughs> per se. But again, it, grit really speaks to that, that more acute challenge and stress whereas you know kind of moving I'll, I'll skip one of the i'll skip over the mental acuity just for a second but the drive attributes on the other hand speak to our ability to set and pursue and achieve these long-term type goals right so drive speaks to more of the long-term type goal whereas grit is more acute
0: well let's dig deep into some of these grit attributes like yeah. take perseverance for example like what is what does that look like and is it possible to develop that and if so like what can you do to develop it
1: yeah. So let me answer that second part first because we can we can develop any attribute that we want to. We just can't do it the same way we can do a skill. And a good way, a good kind of the back of the envelope test to determine whether or not it's an attribute or a skill, because they get conflated all the time, is to ask yourself, can I teach it or can it be taught? If the answer is yes, it's probably a skill. If the answer is no, it's probably an attribute, right? So so like I gave the example, I could take you out to the range if you want to say he said, Rich, I want to learn how to shoot a shoot a pistol and hit a bullseye, you know, every time. Well, I could take you out to the range and do that. I could teach you how to do that within a couple hours. I mean, that's a skill. Or you could say, "Hey, Rich, I want to learn I want to learn how to be more patient or be more adaptable." Well, I can't teach you that, right? So, so to develop an attribute takes self-motivation, it takes self-direction, and it takes a willingness for that individual to step into deliberately step into environments that test and tease and develop that specific attribute right so so if someone wants to develop their adaptability they must deliberately find environments where their adaptability is tested so they can develop it so that's so that's one thing perseverance is a great one and perseverance is is was fun to write about because what i found is that it's a combination in fact of what I call sub attributes. And now we get a little bit complicated, but it's a combination of three things. It's a combination of persistence, tenacity, and and fortitude. And the reason why I had to combine those three and they're not separate is because persistence and tenacity are in fact two different things. Persistence is, is the ability to kind of charge forth on solving a problem with a solution and just keep doing it, right? Keep at it. Over and over and over again until it works. Right. This is you know, another way to describe this is the stone cutter approach. Right. The stone cutter taps that rock, and you know after ninety nine taps hasn't seen anything, and on that hundredth tap, the rock breaks. Right. That's that's persistence. Tenacity is different. Tenacity is the ability to kind of try something, and if it doesn't work, move on to something else and try something else so the car mechanic is tenacious right i'm going to try that i'm going to i'm going to check the belts if it's not that i'll check the spark plugs if it's not that i'll check the carburetor so if a stone cutter for example were tenacious that stone would never get carved right or cut whereas if the if the mechanic were persistent you'd probably run up your you know your your bill would probably run up and you'd never get the problem solved right so So perseverance overall needs to be kind of a combination or balance of the two. We have to kind of understand what we're trying to do and understand what's going to work in that situation. And then fortitude really is the, is kind of the mental toughness to be able to modulate between the two and push through. And so, so it's a combination of all three. And if someone is, is looking to develop their perseverance, the recommendation I would give them would be, okay, first understand where do you fall on the scale of, persistence and tenacity you may be someone who's very persistent but not enough tenacity right or vice versa and then of course where's your where's your fortitude to kind of balance that all out those who are very very impatient tend to be a little bit higher on the tenacity scale whereas those who are very very patient tend to be higher on the persistence but but we all know success uh, requires a balance of the two because depending on what you're doing it might it might might modulate and shift
0: I mean, what would be an example of something you could do to you know, put yourself in so you could work on these attributes? You know, this, this persevere. Well, yeah.
1: So that's, that's great. Great question. And and it's a tough one to answer just because it's, it's highly subjective, right? Because the, because those, those challenges that I consider challenges as rich to are going to be different than the ones that you as Brett consider challenges or some other person. So, so as, as someone who wants to practice perseverance. The recommendation is find tough stuff to do. <laughs> now, tough is going to be subjective to you. Like tough for me, a tough stuff for me is is going to look differently than tough stuff for someone, you know, who has never even been in the military for example, right? But I think that's that's the key is you have to especially when it comes to perseverance, you have to you have to find tough stuff that you, that requires you to persevere through. I mean, the good news slash bad news is that life is going to throw those things at you no matter what. I mean, whether or not you go and look for them. So you can certainly look for tough stuff, but also don't discount the stuff that just happens to us in life because life is rife with stuff that requires perseverance.
0: Well, let's talk about the mental acuity attributes. What are those? And then how do they work together?
1: Yeah. Mental acuity are the four attributes that describe how our brain understands and processes the world. And, and out of all the attributes, those are probably the four that are the most connected because you can't really, you can't really just use one <laughs> and not use the other because it's really a sequence. And so it starts with situation awareness. And this is how our, how we absorb all of the information that's coming into our systems, right? And when we get about 11 million bits of information per second through through all of our five senses. Our conscious mind, however, frontal lobe can really only process about 2,500 bits per second, right? So, so there's a massive amount of deselection going on without us knowing. And I mean, something as simple as, you know, no one who's listening to this is is noticing the feeling on the bottom of their feet, right? Until I just said that, <laughs> right? So, so you know, we're we're deselecting a bunch of stuff. But situation awareness is what we're noticing, and and those with higher situation awareness, you could call a little bit more vigilant. A vigilance is another way to describe this, where you're just you're you're able to notice things that are in your environment that maybe other people tend to kind of not notice, right? I'm the guy who walks through the city streets in New York, right, and I notice the dark alleys and I notice the people the people's faces and their, and where their hands are. And I notice the traffic, you know, coming from both directions. And so, and I'm looking, I'm con- so I'm constantly vigilant and in some cases, hyper vigilant, which is sometimes bad because it can, it can add a lot of stress to the system, but that's situational awareness. So how much, how we're taking information in, then it comes compartmentalization. Once we have that information in our system, in our brains, how are we then assessing it in terms of how it's relevant to our current goal, right? From that assessment, how we're prioritizing that information. So what's the, what are those things that I need to focus on first? And then focus. What am I focusing on first? right? So, so that compartmentalization is a, is a three-step process that happens pretty darn quickly, right? but it's still happening. We're doing that assessment. Those who are really, really good at compartmentalizing can do that pretty rapidly in dynamic environments and constantly maintain awareness of what they need to switch to. So, so compartmentalization is, is obviously a very, very necessary skill for a Navy SEAL, for example. You have to be able to Block out what doesn't matter and only focus on what matters. And this includes if the if the environment, there is there are miserable things about the environment that that do not have anything to do with your current objective or goal, you're able to block that out and move move past it, right? Then comes task switching, which is really ultimately what people think of as multitasking. But multitasking, as we know, is really a myth. We can't really focus consciously on one thing or two or you know two or more than one thing at a time a great example would be driving a car and listening to a podcast right most people will say well i can do that but it doesn't count if you've relegated that that activity whatever you're doing to your unconscious right we're able to drive a car and listen to a podcast because we don't have to think about driving the car However, if we're driving the car, listening to a podcast, and someone swerves in front of us, and we have to swerve out of the way and do some evasive maneuvers, it's guaranteed that you're going to have to rewind that last 15 seconds of the podcast because your your brain just switched. So, so that's task switching. And those people who are who are pretty good at or high on task switching can very effectively hop mentally between contexts and categories. They can go from you know, real quite simply, they can go from an email to a phone call to a to a text message to a conversation, right? And they can make those hops pretty efficiently and it doesn't really screw them up. And then there are people who really can't. It's tough when they when they get when they're in something and they get pulled away, it's tough for them to get back in. So again, no judgment is really where you fall. And then learnability is your ability to kind of absorb and process all that information and and learn it and metabolize it in a way that you can then affect it in your future behavior, right? So so those people who are high on learnability are those folks who you you tell something you tell them something one time or you show them something one time and and they got it right it's like man they just have it and they don't have to repeat it whereas i am actually in fact lower on learnability which means i i find myself making the same mistakes one or two times before i actually learn right so so i've had to adjust my learning process to to account for that because i'm lower on learnability so that's how those four break out and they and they definitely work together
0: yeah. And I think the mental acuity attributes really highlights the idea that you, this is not something you can teach. Like all that stuff, I was thinking the only way you can learn that is just experiencing like highly fluid, complex, uncertain environments. And that's, you're going to learn how to be mentally acute on the fly as you go through that experience.
1: That You're absolutely correct. And and I, and, I and, and it's fun if you pick those environments, again, it's subjective, but you know, driving in traffic is, is a, is an environment where you're testing your Mental attributes, right? I use the example in the book of running through an airport trying to find your your gate, right? That's another way. I mean, so so these are, are, are I also use the subway. I love the New York City, City subways because it, it it exercises all of my mental acuity attributes when I'm on it and trying to find where I'm going and and the platforms and, and the stops and things like that. So so yeah, we can. It's absolutely something that someone has to do for themselves. Although we can also, you know, such as seal training, choose professions or environments where the environment just Hyper develops that stuff. So,
0: we're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. So, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know about Sax Underwear. They've been a longtime sponsor. And if you haven't heard of Sax, Do yourself a favor and check it out. They make the most comfortable underwear for men. Saks Premium Styles are equipped with their patented ballpark pouch, which is basically a built-in hammock that holds everything in place and keeps everything separate down there. There's no more sticking, chafing, or irritation, just 24-7 comfort. The ballpark pouch is made with super soft, moisture-wicking fabric, so it keeps everything comfortable, supported, and sweat-free, and everything is backed by Saks's comfort guaranteed. I've been using Saks for a couple years now. Besides the underwear, they also have athletic gear, athletic shorts with the Saks underwear built into it, so you get the ballpark pouch. Couch. It's great to have on those hot, humid summer days here in Oklahoma. Just keeps everything super comfortable down there. No chafing, no sticking. You know, you know what happens if you live in a hot, humid place, you know the problems that can happen. So what are you waiting for? Take advantage of my special limited time offer to get 10% off plus free shipping. Go to sax.com and use promo code AOM5. That's Saks with two X's, S-A-X-X. You'll get 10% off and free shipping if you go to SaksSaxx.com and use promo code AOM5. Check it out today. Are you ready to establish your online presence but not sure where to start? Look no further than Squarespace. Squarespace empowers the dreamers, makers, and doers of the world by providing the tools they need to bring the creative ideas to life. On Squarespace's dynamic all-in-one platform, you can build a website, claim a domain, sell online, and market your brand. Squarespace's products combine cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your online presence. If you're intimidated by the idea of launching your ideas in the world, Squarespace's templates take out all the guesswork and make it seamless. And once you're out there, you can use Squarespace's analytics to gain powerful insights about your site. If you ever have questions, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help you. I've used Squarespace over the years for one-off projects when I need to get a website up fast. Super easy. Got it done in like 10 minutes. It's time to turn your dreams into reality. Head to squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash manliness and code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. Let's talk about the drive attributes. You've got self efficacy, discipline, then you've got open mindedness, cunning. And then narcissism, we'll talk about that. that's interesting. So you don't think of that as a, a positive attribute. Yeah. But I'd like to dig deep in a discipline because I thought this is really interesting. You in the discipline section, you make this distinction between discipline and self discipline. Yeah, what's yeah. the difference, and why is it important to make that distinction?
1: Well, it, it, it is another fun thing about writing a book. It you know it causes a lot of introspection, <laughs> which it did for me. And I I recognize that when I was talking about discipline and beginning to write about it, I was talking about the ability to kind of project and map out and then move towards and achieve long-term goals, right? The discipline to be able to, to hit the wickets that are required to achieve a long-term goal, of which I have a lot of. I've been able to you know achieve a bunch of neat kind of audacious goals in my life. Self-discipline, though, I don't have a lot of, right? And I said, okay, why is that? And what I recognize is that self-discipline it it speaks to those pursuits that we can engage in on that the external world has no say in right and has no has no bearing on right so so an example would be i want to eat better and get in shape work out right i can decide that anybody can decide that and the external world has no say as to whether or not you achieve that goal it's all on you right you can decide to eat better and then and then go to go to Vegas, go to a Vegas buffet. The buffet is not going to throw bad food at you, right? It's all on you to do that. So, so that's and and so that's self discipline. And, and there are people who people who have who are very high on self discipline are able to affect those goals. And it's it's something that they're they're really good at. Oftentimes, it requires a routine, you know, that someone can kind of do. So you'll find the highly self disciplined people usually have like high. Highly structured and routinized endeavors on a daily basis, right? Whereas the, the lower self-disciplined people like myself, I'm I'm much more like, yeah, I'll just kind of figure it out as we go. You know, I don't I don't have that right. So now, discipline overall, um, it means can I can I achieve this goal? Right, that the external world does have a say in right? I mean, that's writing a book. that's becoming an SEAL, starting a podcast. I mean, the, the achievement of those goals, it's, you know, getting to a certain position in your company or whatever. The achievement of that goal, the external world has a say in. And so to have overall discipline is going to require flexibility and adaptability and some of those other attributes that um, that allow you to kind of move and shake and not get seduced by the highs and not get crushed by the lows. And so obviously the best combo is to is to have both both self-discipline and discipline and be a little, you know, kind of in the in the higher end on both. But we've all seen people who are very, very highly self-disciplined, but they can't when it comes to their kind of their lives overall, they can't accomplish you know long term goals at all. Right. And then we've seen the opposite. We've seen people who are. Very, very good at accomplishing long-term audacious goals, but in terms of their their kind of personal lives, they're not self-disciplined at all. So, so best to kind of look at it as a as a combo and see where you stand on either, and maybe work on either one or both. This made me think
0: of uh, as I was reading your book. Not too like as I was reading this book, I was also reading another book. Did you already for a podcast about Jake McNeese and the Filthy Thirteen from World War II. Uh, yeah. There's like so yeah, there this uh, demolition squad from part of the 101. And these guys had no self-discipline, like none. They, they didn't like to salute. They didn't like to do formation. They were just dirty, filthy, gross, drunk all the time, getting in fights. So they had no self-discipline, but they had a lot of discipline. Like they would give them a job that seemed impossible. They would get it done some
1: yeah. way or another. Yeah, yeah. I, it's a great example. And, and and again, the um, I mean, you could say some uh, spec ops units and SEALs have been accused of that. In fact, th- almost exactly that is like, you know, you know, kind of, gritty, dirty, don't, you know, don't salute like kind of the lower grooming standards. But, you know, but when the job comes down, they will get the job done, you know, and and they will be disciplined in their pursuit of getting that done. And they will adapt. And again, if you are someone who's highly self-disciplined, it probably means that you really like routine, and you really like structure. And if you find that you're someone like that, and you're suffering from lower discipline, right, it's probably because in, in the pursuit of any long-term goal that the external world has a say in, you are going to be thrown off your routine. You're going to be thrown off structure. You're going to have to just adapt. There are going to be certain times where you can't get that workout in at the time that you want it to. You're not going to be able to get that meal. You're not going to be able to sleep when you need to sleep. And so, so again, I think it's an understanding. I'm really interested in articulating this stuff so people can start to understand and deconstruct their own performance and see where they fall on this stuff so they could say, oh, actually, it's not about working on this whole big thing, I can actually just work on these two, one or two pieces, and I'm going to be okay. But yeah, it's a great example. Let's
0: talk about narcissism a little bit. Sure. How is that a positive attribute? Because typically we think of narcissism as negative.
1: Yeah, it trends towards the negative, especially when you start getting in the higher levels. But the reason why I kind of had to add it into the kind of the drive category is because when we think about why we set audacious goals. There's a there's a little bit of a narcissistic tendency that comes into that. I mean, narcissism is really basically the the desire to be adored and feel special and stand out and be recognized. That's what it is. Right. And every human being has a desire at some level to have that happen at least once or twice. Right. And it's and the, the interesting thing is it's not it's not actually just philosophical it's neurological right we, when we're when we're babies when we're infants so we're getting paid attention to and adored by our parents or other adults right we're getting bursts of three very powerful chemicals dopamine which is a powerful neurotransmitter which means you know keep doing this. This is good. We're getting serotonin, which is another powerful neurotransmitter that kind of promotes this feeling of safety and and bonding. And then oxytocin, which is a hormone known as the love hormone, again, a bonding chemical, you know, connecting human beings. We're getting all three of those when we're getting paid attention to. And so, and, and that's as infants, that doesn't change when we're adults, right? There's a reason why we want to feel special once in a while. There's a reason why we want to feel recognized. And so and so there's a little bit of narcissism in that. And I, I kind of joke, and my buddies and I joke about this. Why did we all become Navy SEALs You know, at 18 or 22 years old? Sure, we were all patriots. Sure, we, we love our country and we wanted to you know, serve our country. But it's also because we wanted to be badasses, right? We wanted to see if we could do it. We could see if we could do something that very few people would do. That's a little bit of a hint of narcissism speaking. And so, and so the idea is You know, of course, too much narcissism is bad, right? And there's and the and the DSM five, which is kind of like the psychology bible, will outline. I think it's nine nine criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. And if you read those nine things, I think it's if you have five or more, you have the disorder, right? And so I, I I was reading through these nine things, and I and of course I didn't have five or more, and I'm not even sure I had all of all of each one, but there were certain things I read. It's like, well, I'm sometimes like that. I sometimes feel that way. And so I had to really kind of, again, introspect and and be honest with myself about the fact that sometimes we set and move towards audacious goals because of a little bit of narcissism in us. And so if you metabolize it correctly, it can be an incredible driver. And that's why I wrote about it as an attribute.
0: Right. People always say like, you you can't want to be president of the United States unless you're a little bit of a narcissist. Totally. 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 Right. Um, so let's talk about leadership attributes. That includes things like empathy, selflessness, authenticity, decisiveness, and accountability. And the one that really spoke to me, I think it's interesting. I'm sure you get this all the time. As people read your book, they're like, well, that one spoke to me more than the other ones. Yeah. yeah. The decisiveness one spoke to me for some reason. In, in that section, you make the distinction between being able to make a good decision and being decisive what's that distinction
1: yeah i mean the distinction is speed and efficiency right decisiveness is really an external expression of our mental acuity attributes <laughs> and 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 more specifically like i guess compartmentalization it's our ability to kind of assess information prioritize you know how that information kind of falls into place and then and then focus you know make a decision on something and focus decisiveness is the external expression that it's, it's now you're you're dealing with Things that are coming at you and, are, and, and one's ability to say, okay, out of out of what's going on and, and the information that I have, how can I make and begin to act on a decision? And again, the decision making process is something that all leaders need. But you know, long, protracted, lengthy decision making processes often don't necessarily feel as leader like as someone who has the ability to say, okay, I have this information; it's it's enough that I feel like we're you know, we have what we need and it's not, it's not, I'm not reckless and I'm going to charge forth. And it's kind of this 80, 20 rule. I mean, we used to say some of these targets, you know, if we can get at least a percentage of information on the target that gives us enough to say, okay, let's go, let's go check it out. We're going to go. And we would never, ever get a hundred percent, right? Ever. And 80% was actually a good thing. (laughs) You know, sometimes it'd be 50 or 60%. But what is that percentage of information that allows you to feel comfortable enough to say, okay, that's all I need. I'm not being reckless. I'm going to make a decision, And I'm going to push forth. And again, it's, we have to remember when it comes to decisiveness, a decision can be final, but not permanent, right? The decisive person understands that when I make a decision, I'm going to act on it. It's a final decision, which means I'm going to act on it and move congruently to what I just decided. However, if as I, as I implement that decision, I start moving forward, I find that it was the wrong decision or there's a different, better way. It's not permanent. I can change. I can make another decision, which takes a little bit of Accountability as well. I think I think decisiveness and accountability actually work in tandem when when they're working properly.
0: Uh, any examples from military history where you think indecisiveness cost a military unit?
1: Well, I mean, in the book, I talk about Stalin, who, when the Nazis were invading, I mean, I mean, Stalin had all the proper clues. In fact, he had he had spies who told him exactly when the Nazis were going to invade Russia and he he chose to ignore that and when it in fact happened he locked himself away in his house for several days and so the the commanders on the in the front lines were were just completely almost neutered in their ability to do anything about it because again in that environment they were afraid to do something that perhaps would be looked unfavorably at by Stalin himself so they were kind of neutered in their ability to to do anything and that indecisiveness caused the German army to make advances that were unheard of for that size of a unit when the Russians were so overwhelmingly better prepared and bigger and more and better equipped. Right. But the, but the Germans literally became within, you know, several hundred miles of, of Moscow, right. Before the, before it was really the winter (laughs) that that stopped them. So, so that's a great example in history of indecisiveness, almost costing a nation.
0: So, team ability attributes, move on to that. You include integrity, conscientiousness, humility, and humor. So let's talk about humility. This is coming from a seal. And I think most people, when they think of seals, they think of these sort of hard charging guys with swagger and beards. But you note that you know, the best seals are usually the most humble seals. So what does, what does like swaggering seal humility
1: look like? Yeah, it it looks like something that that almost is unnoticeable. I always say the most dangerous seal you've ever met is the guy you've met and you never knew you met, right? Because it's unassuming and it's not and it's not really visible. I think I think there's a lot of seal stuff out there and seal mythology and even some seals out there who who are very at least in image and and kind of the way they portray themselves. They kind of speak to that kind of oh yeah, that's what a navy seal looks like. But I, I I'm I'm telling you that most seals are, they look like regular people, right? You know, and it's hard, they're not, they're not necessarily easy to pick out. And I think that's where the, that's where the humility begins. But I think, you know, any seal, regardless if you look like one or don't, every seal recognizes how humility is absolutely necessary. And the reason why you recognize that, and you, it's something you learn at buzz from day one is that, is that you as a seal place yourself environment and into environments that will immediately humble you if you are not already humble, right? The ocean is a perfect example. The ocean will kill you. It will kill. And it doesn't matter how good of a swimmer you are. It doesn't matter, how, you know, what background, it will kill you if you turn it, if, if you turn your back on it, right? It's that, it's that powerful. You don't screw around with the ocean. Same thing with mother nature in any environment, but also in combat. I mean, listen, you know, in Africa, you know, there are bad guys who give guns to nine-year-olds, Right and a nine-year-old firing a bullet, right, that hits a Navy SEAL who might have, you know, ten or fifteen years' experience. That bullet, if if placed properly, is going to kill that guy, right? And so, and so, the environments that you're in in SEAL life, whether it be the ocean or the the mountains or in combat, where one bullet fired in the right way by anybody can kill you, is is immediately humbling. I think so that I think most SEALs recognize that, and that's you know how it how how I found at least the guys I I was around for most of the time and most of my career conducted themselves.
0: And as you said, in this section, there's a sweet spot. Like you don't want to be too humble. Cause then you become sort of like a doormat, but yeah. then you don't want to be like, again, cause you need some of that narcissism,
1: right. To like, yeah, to yeah. Have drive. It some
0: bravado, right.
1: I mean, humble. the problem with humility is it comes with a little bit of a stigma and, and you know, where it comes, you know, where that stigma comes from, people, people could debate, but you know, you know, sometimes people think of humbleness or humility as weakness, or, you know, I'm going to, bow my head and, you know, give in or whatever. And, and, you know, it's, it's not, I mean, I, I mean the, the, the humility properly, well, I guess you say, yeah, humble. I mean, any one of these attributes, Brett taken to either extreme is bad, right? So too much of anything is bad and too little of anything is bad. So, so on all of these, you want to find a sweet spot. That's what, that's the optimal place mean, it's no different for humility, right? Too much humility to the point where, like, oh no, you know, I'm bowing your head, and you're just, you know, almost a, a limp noodle is bad, right? There's a there's a there's a humility that says I think that I think the healthy humility is, is is the humility that says I am I'm confident with with my capability and my skill, but I always have something to learn. There's people who can always teach me new things, so I always have my ears open, and I'm not arrogant about it, right? So it's kind of that proper humility is confidence versus arrogance, right? That's what it is. Because again, confidence is, I know I can do this. And in knowing that, I also know I have a lot to learn. Whereas arrogance is externally focused. It's I am better than you. (laughs) And as soon as you start saying that, you've you've closed your mind to additional learning and you have lost your humility.
0: I I know my our podcast listeners get tired of me saying this because I usually bring it up in every episode, but this sounds like Aristotle. This is yeah. the idea of the golden mean, right? And finding the, 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 the virtue is finding that, that middle spot between two vices, essentially. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, I've had several friends who've, who've read the book and I've talked to about the book and, and they're like, Hey, this is, this goes all the way back to Aristotle. And they've, they've sent me you know a lot of Aristotle stuff. So I've, I've started to dig through that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, this is stuff that yeah, it was cool writing about it because the stuff that we've actually been talking about for for, for, you know, thousands of years, right? Uh, these qualities. And I think this is just a different way to look at them and explain them and articulate them. So people can actually say, okay, this is how this makes sense for me. So you have a, a few attributes at the end of the
0: book that didn't really fit into any of the, the four categories. And we've, you've mentioned some of them throughout our conversation. One is patience and impatience. And then I think a uh, competitiveness was another attribute. Tell us how those, those attributes play in with the rest of these
1: attributes. Yeah, well, it, the, the reason why I couldn't fit them into the categories is because they didn't they didn't match up in terms of what I just said. In terms of if you're if you're really low or really high, it's kind of bad, you know. They, they in other words, they didn't really have a sweet spot because there are people who are very impatient and they're highly successful. There are also people who are very patient and they're highly successful. And same thing with competitiveness and uh, non-competitiveness. And the other one was fear of rejection versus, you know, kind of insouciance to what people think. And so, and so the way this works is, uh, you know, let's just say competitiveness, because it's it's one that was interesting to kind of look at. It's assumed by most people that competitiveness is a absolutely necessary attribute for success, right? And I don't disagree with that. But what I do disagree with is the implied corollary, which is that non-competitiveness doesn't work, right? Non-competitiveness can also be very, very instrumental to high levels of success. And the reason why I know this is because I am not a competitive person, right? And I and I never was. I used to play sports in high school, and I was in fact the captain of of my lacrosse team in high school. And and I never really it never really bothered me or moved me either way when we won or lost. I was I loved the game and I loved the sport and I loved the kind of the teamwork and I loved the intricacies. But the winning or losing was like okay, it's, I mean, I it, it didn't really bother me. And I thought that'd be a a hindrance when I went to SEAL training because I was like, man, that, this, this might be bad. But what I recognized when I got to SEAL training is that is that the Navy SEALs, as, as does most, if not all high-performing teams, recognize and honor both polarities because both polarities are necessary. The competitive mind looks at a, a problem, a situation, an environment, and immediately begins to place rules and conditions around what they're seeing and then asks the question, how can I win in this environment based on these rules and conditions, right? That's very, very powerful. It's a very, very powerful thing to be able to do. But the non-competitive mind looks, might look at the same situation and say, okay, I don't care about the rules. <laughs> you know, as far as I'm concerned, there are, there are no rules. I don't really want to go down the line on this one. How do we work or how do we, how do we find a way that's completely goes around it or does something different, right? That also can be a very powerful Success mechanism, right? And in the SEAL teams, especially when we're looking at complex operations, you know, here's a mission. We have to accomplish this mission. It's it's really beneficial to have both polarities on a team because one will look at us, so okay, how can what are the rules around here? How can how can we win? What might be the best way? And the other minds are saying, okay, what's a what's a way we can think about this completely differently? And so all teams will benefit from both polarities, which is why I put them in the chapter where I I talk about these others.
0: So how do you figure out what your attributes are? So we've talked about all of them. Is it just a matter of self-reflection or is it, do you need like a third party to sort of triangulate? Cause I mean, you might think, well, I'm, I'm gritty. I've got grit, yeah, but yeah. really you you don't. So what does that look like figuring out what your attributes
1: that you have? Yeah, it can come in different forms, right? So there has to be some introspection, but it has to be honest introspection. Like, and and one of the ways we can do that is to look back at those times in our lives where we were inside of challenge, uncertainty, and stress and how we, and kind of autopsy, how we performed. Right. You know, I, the, the environment was changing around me and it was outside my control and I, it felt really hard and bad. Well, that might give a clue as to your adaptability levels. Your adaptability might be a little bit lower. Right. So, so that's one place is to autopsy. You can, if people really, we can, our loved ones who know us very well, or our teammates who we've been through shared challenge with can help us can help us distinguish those. And then and then just throwing ourselves into new challenging environments, we can we can start to distinguish so the, the key is to know that first of all, we all have all of the attributes, okay, the difference in all of in all of us and each one of us is is really the extent to which we have each one, right. So I, I talk about adaptability as the example, if 10 is high, and one is low, I'm probably level eight on adaptability, which means when the environment changes around me outside of my control, I am pretty good. It's very easy for me to kind of go with the flow and flex, right? Someone else might be level three, which means the same thing happens to them. It's difficult for them to go with the flow and flex. They're still adaptable. It's just difficult, right? So, so if we were to line all these attributes up on a wall, like dimmer switches, all of our dimmer switches would be at different positions. And that, that, you know, if we connect the dots, all of our lines would look differently. And so this is the first thing we have to recognize. The second thing we have to recognize is that we don't have to have... The perfect amount of all the attributes. In fact, that's impossible. Okay, and there's no judgment to where to where we fall on that scale, right? But then the, the, the specific niches we're in require certain attributes, and others don't, right? Um, the the stand up comic doesn't. Necessarily need to have a lot of the leadership attributes, right? Because it's a pretty self-directed profession. And I would say, like, take something as you know, a specific one like empathy. If the stand-up comic is a little bit lower in empathy, that's probably a good thing because too much empathy is going to affect his routine. I mean, how can you find the funny at a funeral if you're too empathetic, right? So, so the idea is to to start thinking about this in a way like, how do I show up, right? You know, in reading the book, you get a sense of how of, of kind of. What these attributes mean? I know on the website um, we've developed an assessment tool that allows someone to go in and get a score as to where they fall on the grid attributes, the mental acuity attributes, and the drive attributes. So they can kind of see, as compared to a, a big data pool that we you know, get got information from, where they fall, like on adaptability or situation awareness. But then to take those scores and say, okay, how does that? What does that mean? And how does that fit into my my true experience? Does that make sense? Does it not make sense? And do that diligence. And the idea, I guess, ultimately, the way to think about this is that we're all as human beings, we're all humans, right? Uh, But we're kind of like automobiles, right? Some of us are Jeeps, some of us are Ferraris, and some of us are SUVs, right? But there's no judgment there, because the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do, and the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do. And it behooves us to kind of lift our hood and figure out what our engine looks like, because we may, in fact, be a Jeep that's trying to run on a Ferrari track. Or it might be a Ferrari that's trying to run on a Jeep track. And again, if that's our choice, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we might say, you know what? I actually i want to I want to take my Jeep and get to on a Jeep track. But even if you're a Jeep that wants to run on a Ferrari track, what that allows you to do is say, okay, as a Jeep running on a Ferrari track, what are those attributes that I am I need to now actively develop? So I can be a, a better Jeep running on this Ferrari track. And I think that's the real power of being able to start to understand and deconstruct this for yourself.
0: Yeah, it helps you figure out your fit. And I mean, going yeah. back to that, that guy you were training at the very beginning of the we were talking about the very beginning of the podcast. Like at first, when he got rejected, he was really bombed. But later on, he figured out because but then afterwards you told him, like, here's what's you're lacking. Right. But, but he also like, here's what you have. Here are the attributes you do have find something within the organization
1: that fits that. And he did yeah. that and he had a, a really flourishing, fulfilling career. That's right. Yeah. And that just that knowledge allows you to kind of just, yeah, tweak yourself. Because again, even, even in, in the performance enhancement space, there's so many different tweaks and techniques and, and gimmicks to to enhance performance that are out there, right? And, and some of them are phenomenal. Some of them are probably not that good. But if you pick the wrong thing, it's, you know, they don't all work for, all people right if you try to put a nitrous oxide booster on a jeep engine it's probably not going to go very well right so so you have to just by understanding your own system you can in fact also start to understand what those what's out there that can help you improve your system and that's important too
0: well rich uh this has been a great conversation where can people go to learn more about the book and your work
1: yeah, it's a, so the best place is theattributes.com, which is the website where you can get the book. You can also take that free assessment tool. You can see where you stand on that. And then we, I, we have some workbooks on there that people want to develop specific attributes. They can grab a workbook and, and develop attributes. And then, yeah, and then there you can find the Instagram handle that I have for the attributes for Rich Davini and LinkedIn and, and Twitter and things like that. So that's probably the best uh, kind of one stop shop for all things attributes, theattributes.com. Fantastic. Rich DeVine, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here, so I appreciate it.
0: My guest today was Rich DeVine. He's the author of the book, The Attributes. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about the book at his website, theattributes.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is attributes, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to Stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code to at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminding you to not only listen to the OM podcast, but put what you've heard into action.